fresh batteries, ready to go. Everybody got a uh, cupcake? Did Malachi make anything? Did he make any, did he make any food? He didn't? This is his window. I'm setting him up for a three-pointer, and he doesn't. Her son loves to cook. He likes to bake. So I'm like, now's your chance, man. Bake. Do it. So anybody have anything happen to him, and you didn't do anything wrong? Yeah? It's like, all you're trying to do is the right thing, and everything goes sideways. Well, I got a story for you. We're going to talk about a guy named Paul, who, or his, name, his original name was Saul. Jesus likes to change your name. I don't know if you're aware of that. Yeah, that's right. He likes to take the old you and give you the new you, a spiritual makeover, if you will, and make you who you were created to be, not who you, were, who you think you were. And so this guy, his name is Saul, and he becomes Paul, and I'll just give you a little background about him. He was born, he was born a Hebrew, a Jewish person of the tribe of Benjamin. He was born into a family that was very religious, and they were very wealthy. And the religious sects, so I'll tell you about these different sects or sections of the Jewish faith during the time of Jesus. There was pretty much four of them that were primary. One of them was the Sadducees. So if you read your Bible and you don't know anything and you're like, who are these Sadducees guys? Um, they, were, they were religious leaders who didn't believe in supernatural power. And that's very sad, you see. So that if you want to know what a Sadducee is, they're, they're religious leaders who didn't, that's an easy way to remember it, is they, they didn't believe in the resurrection, and they didn't believe in the active power of God. And Jesus rebuked them, and one of the, one of the coolest corrections I've ever read in the Bible, Jesus, when Jesus rebukes you, it's just really cool. And so he corrected them, and he says, you are ignorant of the word of God and the power of God. In other words, you don't know what you're talking about on any level. It's one of the corrections that he gave to the Sadducees. But these were religious leaders. They were very powerful. They were very political. Um, they had literally sold their positions or sort of uh, held their positions only uh, as ceremonial positions. And they were pretty much uh, united with the political authorities. They weren't really uh, representing the Lord very well. And, then, and they, on top of that, they didn't believe in the power of God. Uh, then we have a group of uh, uh, a religious sect or a sect of Judaism. Uh, again, it's called the Herodians or the Hellenists. So you're going to read this. If you read your Gospels, you're going to read about the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and uh, this other group called the Herodians. Well, who were the Herodians? They were pretty much Jews who left their faith. They didn't want anything to do with their faith, and they, had, they were cultural Jews, so they're also called Hellenists, so they adopted uh, cultural lifestyles, cultural clothing, cultural language. They, they were completely outside uh, of uh, Judaism, per se, so there were more secular uh, Jewish Jew, Jews at the time. Then you have these, this group called the Essenes. The Essenes were, were, were Jewish people that just got sick and tired of society, and they began to live in desert kingdoms. So they would go and live out in the middle of the desert. These are your end-time prepper Christians, so in case you don't know. These, I'm serious. We have a whole group of them today that, you know, living in the mountains of Georgia and North Carolina and even North Florida, and they live away from everybody. They live in complete and total isolation burying fuel in the ground and stacking up food for the tribulation that is to come, the end of the world as we know it. And yeah, that's happening, but nowhere does Jesus tell us to check out. You know, John 16, he's like, I pray that you're not be taken out of the world, but that you stay in the world. And he, there's no prayer or requirement or God saying, you know what, it's going to get really bad. We all just need to go and create a prepper society in the, on the, on the out. And, and look, if you're that person, don't get mad at me and don't, don't beat up on me. But what I want to tell you is you might want to back up and think about that a little bit. So this was this group of, of Essenes. They were essentially, the reason that they're not spoken of in the scriptures is because they were culturally ineffective. Why they, they had no effect on their culture. They were not salt and light, as we even are called to be, but they were not salt and light in their generation because they were living in the middle of the woods. They completely checked out on society. They completely vacated all responsibility that they had. And really what that is, is it's a self-focused life. And so the Essenes were not really mentioned in the scripture. They're known in history, but they're not mentioned in the scripture. And that's one of the reasons why. Because they didn't do anything. Then you have this group of the, fad, the Pharisees, which who is where Paul came out of. He was born into a family of Pharisees. These are Bible literalists. 
they literal they had literal interpretation of the scripture. They were Bible purists. They would be considered by um, our modern day as a holiness movement. It was all about externals. It was all about perfection. It was all about everything being clean, neat, and orderly at all times. Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or hang out with those that do. Don't watch any R-rated movies that aren't about Jesus. You know, it was all about, it was about externals. Jesus flipped that one right on his head. He said, you think that it's, it's by washing the outside of the cup? That, that isn't cleansing anything. The outside of the tomb, whitewashed tomb, it's the internal that needs to be reconciled, not the external. The external oftentimes is a product of the internal. And you're not going to change anything, or you're not going to get rid of a weed or a bush by just cutting the branches. You have to deal with the root of the problem. And the root of man's problem is internal. It's not external. And so they lived a life, and they would present themselves all the time. And Jesus called, that's the group where Jesus is always calling them hypocrites. So if you ever want to know who he's talking to, he wasn't talking to the normal people. So when Jesus is going, hypocrites, brood of vipers, and he's saying all of these really strong words, these words were not directed towards everyday people. That's not directed towards the group. This was directed towards this religious group of Pharisees who, in principle, they were correct, but in application, they were wrong. He said, you travel the world to get one person to convert, and then you make them twice the child of hell as you are. You put more rules and regulations on them than any, any person could possibly bear. Jesus isn't rule-driven. He's spirit-driven. And we become very pharisaical as believers today because we don't understand it. And so we like to put rules around everybody. And, and that's it. We have, and we have to have some kind of rule system. Your rule system is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two hang all of the commandments. And so if you want to get it straight, you need to learn to walk in the Spirit. And when you walk in the Spirit, you fulfill the law of God. It's not about externals. It isn't. And we do all this condemnation stuff. It's, 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 not, it's not about that. And this takes, just like it does today, what it did when Jesus was around. It takes the religious system and flips it right on its head. And the people go crazy. Oh, oh. We need more holiness in the church, Pastor. Got to have more holiness around here. I'm like, yeah, what are you struggling with? What you're really saying to me is that you have issues internally that you can't control, and you need me to be a legalist and put rules around you and beat you up so that, I can, so that you feel a little bit better about yourself. That's what it is. It's true. No, no rules can make you the person you don't want to be. No amount of accountability, no amount of structure can make you the person you do not want to be. You either want to be that or you don't. And the power to be that is found not in rules. The power to do that is found in, in, in the Spirit of God. It's it. So we, we have this kind of unspoken thing. These were literalists. These were purists. All of these things were happening, and they, and they had this, all of this externals. And pretty much the move of God and the move of Christ among, or the move of God among the Hebrew people was stagnant because they weren't doing anything. He said, you consume a camel and you strain out a gnat. You laden men down with burdens that you yourself will not carry. You put rules out there, and you yourself don't even keep your own rules. You exempt yourselves from the rules that you put upon the people. Brood of vipers, hypocrites. They love the best seats in the synagogue. They love to walk in the door with a briefcase and an entourage. We have pastors today that do that. They got, they got, a, they got an entourage of 15 people. Who is trying to kill you? Seriously, who is trying to kill you? I mean, it's like, it's crazy. And you, they love the best seats in the synagogues. They lengthen the, 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 the hem of their garment. They pray loud, boisterous prayers so everyone can hear them. Not a prayer from the heart, not a prayer that's centered in the spirit, not a prayer that comes from the fervency and the passion of God, but just religious, eloquent prayers. Oh, <laughs> Jesus isn't into that, just so you know. The Lord is not into that at all. He wants real people in real relationships, in a living relationship with him. He's not into religion. Jesus didn't come to start a religion. If you've never heard that, you can hear it now. Jesus came to start a revolution. A revolution fueled by love, fueled by power, fueled by passion. That's what he came to do. A revolution that produces transformative change from the inside out. Jesus on the inside, working on the outside. Oh, what a change in my life. That was an old song. Anybody ever heard that song? No? Sherry and I know Sherry knows that. 
I had a pastor one time, that was his favorite song. Jesus on the inside, working on the outside. Oh, what a change in my life. <laughs> so this guy, so here's how literal these guys were. They, they, so pretty much Exodus gives 10 commandments, right? So Exodus 20 gives 10 commandments. The 10 commandments, anybody ever heard of that? 10 commandments. Right? And the commandments were not given to be, to be kept. The commandments were given to show you that you are separated from God. The Bible never tells us that those commandments were expected to be kept. It tells us over and over again that the law cannot save us. It tells us again that the law was a schoolmaster and that the law was a mirror. And it's through the law that we realize we're sinners. And when we realize we're sinners, we realize we can't save ourselves. We realize our, we are, we, no amount of righteousness can save us. And what it's supposed to produce is humility and a desire for God to do something that we cannot. So the law was never meant to be kept. Never. People go, oh, we need to keep the Ten Commandments. I always tell them, how are you doing with that? How's that working for you? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How's that working? Anybody want to testify? Because what the law demands is perfection. So when it gives a command, you have to be perfect in that command. You have to perfectly love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You were to have no idols before him. The dolphins, the mall, your makeup bag, you know, your television, the 22s on your car. I mean, I don't know. You're to have nothing in front of him. How are you doing with that? No one can keep it. None of us can. None of us. And Paul actually is the guy, one of the, he, he, the Hebrews put up 613. So by the time of Jesus, we go from 10 to 613. That's how literal they were. They took the word Torah, which has a numerical, so Hebrew words and Hebrew letters and Hebrew structure, the Bible in the Old Testament has, there's numerical value for each letter. So each letter has an assigned number to it. And the numerical value of the word Torah is 611. So they take 611 and take the first two commandments, which love the Lord your God and have no idols, combine them with 611, and they came up with this idea that there needs to be 613 commandments. That's their logic, okay? Spirit of stupid, I don't know what it is, but it, they came up with that idea. And so from that idea, they began to take, to create 613 commandments. And then not only that, they wore, hems, they wore strings on the, anybody ever know what a prayer shawl is? Some of y'all know what a prayer shawl is. You see the strings, right, on the prayer shawl. It's called a zitzit. You can say it with me. Zitzit. Come on. Zitzit. That's right. There you go. You, you got to smile when you say that. The number for zitzit means 600, so they take 600 from that number of zitzit, which simply means tassel. They add eight threads to the tassel and do five knots, and they come up with 613. So they're literally walking around reminding themselves that there are 613 commandments. Yeah. Paul said, I was blameless of all of them. That's what he says, except one. Every commandment I was blameless of because they were all presented to be externals, except the one that says you shouldn't covet. You shouldn't want something from the heart. You shouldn't have malice or desire for vengeance or the possessions of another at the expense of the other. That's what coveting means. It's not an issue of desire. It's that I want it at your expense or I want vengeance upon you. That's malevolence. And Paul said, when I realized that, I was, that that law could not be kept externally, but that law was within me, I realized the law of sin was not out here. The law of sin was within me. And the Bible has a very specific requirement for the law. It says, if you're guilty of the part, you're guilty of the whole. And so the whole idea behind this idea of the law was to show you, you can't do it. You are imperfect and cannot keep the perfect law of God, but there's only one who can. And Jesus became like us in order that we could become like him. He pays the price for us so that we are not found, as the Bible says, in our own righteousness, but we're found in his righteousness. 
That's why we have to be born again. We're born of Adam in the flesh. All of us are born of Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve. We're born in sin. When we come to Christ in the spirit, we're born again unto righteousness. You're no longer the seed of Adam and Eve. You're born of the seed of heaven. The Bible says it's an incorruptible seed. Your bloodline spiritually no longer flows of the earth. Your bloodline flows of heaven. Your inheritances are not to flow from the earth. Your inheritances are to flow from heaven. This is gospel. We don't see it applied. God makes provision, but we have to apply the provision. That's the difference. We, we think that everything just magically happens by default. God has made provision for the whole world to be saved, but the only people that are going to be saved are the ones who apply the provision. Can we agree? People aren't going to get saved just, by, just because Jesus has paid the price for the whole world. You have to, he sent you an RSVP, but you, he sent you an invitation to his party, but you have to RSVP. If you don't RSVP, if you don't respond, si vous play, respond immediately. If you don't respond to the invitation, your name's not going to be on the list. And so you know there is a list. And when you stand before the Lord, he's going to look over the list. And if your name's not on the list, you're not getting in. And you say, well, what's the alternative? We're not, you don't even want to, mean, you don't even want to talk about the alternative. We should, don't we want to talk about what, what the option, the, the positive option is? So Jesus, if you don't know Christ today, you need to give your heart to him. You need to surrender to him. You need to give him what, you, what he desires most, and that's your life. It's true. And your name, you pass from darkness unto light. You're, you go into, you're written in the Lamb's book of life. You're written in the list, man. Your feet are on the rock. Your name is on the roll. I mean, you're ready to go. Paul was a highly educated family. He came from a wealthy family. His, he was highly educated. He spoke Greek. How do we know? He was, uh, he was an intern at the Sanhedrin. He was a student of a Jewish teacher named Gamaliel. So you know how the Jewish system worked. You, if you, you, they, you had to be prolific. In other words, it, it, was a, it was a theocratic society. It was a world in which religion, religious worship, Bible, and that was all highly valued. So where we value doctors, and we value lawyers, and we value engineers, that's our Western culture, they, that was not of value to them. The ability to articulate, the ability to, to uh, disseminate, and the, the ability to build through and reveal the word of God, that was of the highest value in that culture. And so they were not pushing their kids into math and sciences. They were pushing them into theology. And those were the ones that were the highest valued of the society. And they would take the, 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 the highest value, like we'll send them to MIT or we'll send them to Stanford or wherever it is, the higher places of education. Not everybody gets in there. Can we agree with that? You know? <laughs> you got a 1.7. You're not going to Stanford. I'm sorry to tell you that. You know? So you have to, you have to that's where they went. So the, these people, those people that, that showed that kind of proficiency were put in the higher learning institutions, and Paul was a master. Paul would have been considered a genius of his day. He was in the, he was, uh, their, their whole governmental system was called a Sanhedrin, and it was religious leaders, and they were the ones who ruled the culture and ruled the society. And Paul was an intern to the, to, to the Sanhedrin, and he was a student of a teacher named Gamaliel, the most powerful teacher of his day. And so you know, to be a student of that guy, you were just no yo. You had to really demonstrate an ability. And not only did you demonstrate an ability, you had to have money, because they didn't take on interns for free. Your family paid. You had to first qualify, and if you qualified to be their intern, or you qualified to be their student, that's the hardest part. Then the second part is, is your family had to be able to pay the larger sum that was required, and the highest teachers demanded the highest sums. Families would go into mortgage. Families would give everything up in order for their son or their, to, to get into that position. If they were accepted, their family would literally sell everything and go into debt because that was the ultimate goal of the culture, was that. And Paul's a student of Gamaliel, of the Sanhedrin, on the council. He's no yo. And his family's very wealthy. He was a Roman citizen, spoke Greek. You name it, the guy's got it going on. From an earthly perspective, he's got it going on. And he gives it all up for Jesus. All of it. And he said, everything that I had in this world is nothing compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Anything I've lost is inconsequential to what I have gained through him and the riches of his kingdom and his glory and the life that is now and yet to come. 
So Philippians said, here it is. Oh, I wrote it. I actually put the verse up there. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of everything. He lost his family, so you know. If you were a Jew and you became a Christian, you were, not, you were considered dead to the family. Dead. We have a friend, uh, a friend of ours, a friend of Sherry and I's. She was, uh, her whole family were uh, Orthodox Jews. She becomes born again, and they have, complete, they have disowned her. Her father died. She was not invited to the funeral. She's considered dead to them. Nothing to do with them whatsoever. No inheritances, doesn't speak to her brother, doesn't speak to her sisters, doesn't speak to her mother. No one in her family will speak to her. She has no family, no inheritance, nothing, zero. That's the price they paid. And that's the price Paul paid. When Paul became a believer, you can rest assured, his father a Pharisee, the whole sect, the whole family, they all completely exiled him. So when he says, I've lost everything, you can better believe he lost everything. He lost it all. So you, 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 you were not playing Christianity back then. This wasn't a game. You know, pinwheels and cotton candy, skip to the loo, let's go see the light show. That wasn't, that wasn't the game back then. The game was reality. You wanted Christ, it cost you everything. That's still the demand that's on the gospel, by the way. The demand that's on the gospel is it's everything. All that you are for all that he is. Well, I'll try, Jesus. That's a modern 21st century invention. There's no such thing as try Jesus. It's all in. God takes all of your brokenness, all of your dysfunctions, and he wants it. He's not expecting for perfection from you. He just wants you to give him your life because he made you. He wants to do things. He wants to transform you. He wants to renew you. All of that. So he says, I want to be found in Christ. Paul hated Christians. He murdered and arrested them wherever he went. This is how radical this cat was. Right? They had a problem with the Christians. Christianity was a problem not just for the Jews. It was a problem for the Romans. Because if you converted to Judaism, you per, the Judaism was pretty much only stayed within Jew, it was through family lineage and bloodline, and Judaism was pretty much contained to a specific group, ethnic group of people. Christianity crosses all borders, all races, all creeds, all languages, every political spectrum, every economic spectrum. The gospel is insanely dangerous, insanely dangerous, especially to oppressive governments. And that's what you see what happens with Paul. The gospel brings liberty, brings transformation, brings renewal, brings all sorts of things when it's released in its purest form. We, we dumb it down. We got, you know, we got a hundred proof bottle of gospel that's been given to us and we dumb it down to .000001 and we wonder why it has no effect because it's diluted. It's not the pure gospel. And I mean, when I say the pure gospel, it's not, it's not the fullness. Let's use that word. We're, not bringing, we're bringing measure when we're called to bring fullness. That's a better way of putting it. And so Paul loses everything. He hates Christians. He goes to the high priest and he's like, hey, y'all got a Christian problem? I can help you with that. Give me papers and give me authority. Write me out letters that gives me permission to kill and arrest Christians wherever I find them. In the marketplace, you know, on the roadside, in a house, his permission, he had a blanket, he had a blanket right to arrest and murder Christians wherever he found them. If he wanted to arrest you, he'd arrest you. If he wanted you killed, he'd kill and he'd just completely there. And that's why Paul says, I'm the least of all the saints. I'm the least deserving of anybody because I murdered believers. I stripped them of everything that they had. So when they arrested you, so we understand, again, the cultural context. America, you know, okay, you get arrested, but they don't seize everything you have unless you're doing specific types of crimes. In that world, when you were arrested, you lost it all. They came and seized everything you had. In some instances, they took your children and sold them as slaves. And your wife, your family, if you were convicted, accused of specific crimes in that world, you would go here, your wife would go into slavery, and so would your children. They would completely disseminate the family. You literally lost it all again. And your possessions, everything. That's the world that we're coming out of. This is what Paul was doing. So Paul's doing this. You understand? And he runs into Jesus on the Damascus Road. You can roll the next slide. He's on the road to Damascus. In other words, he's going to Damascus to find Christians. 
This is the guy's life mission. <laughs> I mean, dude, get a life. He is obsessed with persecuting believers. This is what he ate, slept, and drank. Because he viewed Christianity, he was, a, he was devout to the Lord, and he saw Christianity as a threat to everything that he believed. People were coming to Christ. People were being converted. It was revolutionizing everything that was going on, and it was a problem. He encounters Jesus on the road, and people go, he was knocked off his donkey. There's no donkey in that story. Read it. There's no donkey in the story. He was knocked to the ground, and then people go, he was struck blind. He was given without discernment. And the reason I'm going to make a case out of this is because people, particularly those, you know, we, we believe Jesus heals. We believe we've been empowered to heal, and the God that was saved yesterday, today, and forever, he's Jehovah Rapha. He's the God who heals. And people go, well, look, see here, God struck Paul with blindness. That's a, again, that's a very poor interpretation. In the Greek, it's the word blepon, and it means without perception. It says, for Paul, for three days, was without perception. You say, what's the difference? Well, the difference is this. That's the word that's used. The word tiflos is the only Greek word, and it means physically blind. And so when it says that Paul was blind, it's saying he was blepon. He was without perception. He was completely disoriented. But he was not struck with physical blindness. That's an important distinction. Jesus does not afflict people with disease. That is very, very, very important to understand. There's a ton of bad theology out there. And we blame God for the works of the devil. We blame God for something that's a result of sin. And if you don't get that thinking right, it's going to mess you up because it's, you're completely off. Well, God gave me this just so that I could suffer through it. Who told you that? This is an affliction of God so that he could teach me humility. Who told you that? Your Bible, I'm telling you right now, your scripture isn't telling you that. Your Bible doesn't tell you that. We're doing a school of supernatural healing and, do, and, and inner healing, and we're going to start it in March. If you want to learn more about it, it's a school, so there's going to be a lot, it's going to be a lot of learning involved. Firestarters is activation. This is a school. There's going to be, if you'd like to learn more about that, you could sign up for that. He leaves for three years. So Paul's without perception. He's, he's just completely disoriented. He's whatever. He just, he's just out of it for three days. Somebody said, well, scales fell off his eyes. Yeah, but he was not, whatever that is, but he did not, God did not give him a physical illness. That is very important to understand. God did not give him a physical illness. And the critics of the healing movement and the critics of God's will and God's, God's mercy and the, and the covenant of the cross, which provides for us divine healing, point to that verse and say, see there, look what God did. And I would say, you are ignorant of the word of God and the power of God. Oh, sad you see. <laughs> you don't know your word. The translation in English does not, does not compare to the Greek. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. If you want to learn the original intent of the word, you need to go back to the Hebrew and go back to the Greek. Our English translation is very, very poor. I, wish I, I shared a bunch of stuff with my wife. She's like, man, you need to teach that. You need to say that. There's another one. Okay, so people go, oh, well, Paul. You guys want to hear another one? Yes. All right, why not? Uh, okay, I'll try. Okay. <laughs> when Paul says, I prayed three times that this thorn in the flesh would be taken away from me. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. <laughs> Here again, he, critics of healing go, well, Paul was afflicted with a weeping eye. Paul had a physical ailment that was his thorn in the flesh. And you know what the church does? We accept that as truth. There is nowhere in the Bible that says Paul was given a physical illness that was his thorn in the flesh. Nowhere. Nowhere. Nowhere doesn't exist. That's, it's conjecture and speculation. What the Bible tells us his thorn in the flesh was is that he had trolls that followed him from town to town. Everywhere he went, he would plant a church, and Judaizers and legalists would come in behind him and completely uproot everything that he did. And that's why Paul's always going, if I or an angel of light preached to you another gospel, you have the, he's, all of the epistles that he's writing to churches, a lot of the content is to counterman the people that were coming behind him and teaching the church false things. That was his thorn in the flesh. 
And he's going, Lord, you got to do something about this. This is bothering me. Every time I kind of do something, these guys come in and it's bothering me. And God answers him with, he says, my grace is sufficient. Now let's just talk about Christianity again. We have to change. We're, we're locked in a mindset that needs, to, that needs to change. God's grace is sufficient for me. Oh, I have this thorn in the flesh. But God's grace is sufficient. Then we counsel one another like that. It's just the thorn in the flesh. His grace is sufficient for you. Just endure, Christian. Just endure, sister. God's grace is sufficient. Again, ignorance of the word and ignorance of the power. That word grace is the, is the word charis, is where charismata comes from, which is where charismatic comes from, which is where the power of God moving in love comes from. What, Paul is, what God is saying to Paul is it doesn't matter what you're facing, Paul. You're asking me to do something that I've given you the power to perform. I've given you the charismata. You are looking to me to do something that I have equipped and empowered you with. Look to the charismata. Look to the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit moving in love, the charismata, the gifts, the calling of the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is sufficient for whatever you face. Oh, that changes the dynamic of that scripture entirely. That puts us in a whole different world. And you say, well, why wouldn't people say that? The people that don't, people that don't want to teach that don't believe in the power of God. And so what they have to do is they have to create conjectures, they have to create doctrines, they have to create scriptures that support their position. Even if it contradicts the text, the text is not written that way. You can look it up. The word grace is the word charis. The word spiritual, the moving of the spirit, the power of God, the Holy Spirit, is the word charismata. Charismata means, means the power of God moving in love. Charis is the power of God, the love of God. Mata is the word, we get the word automatic from it. it mata is movement. The movement of the power of God in love. And it's relating specifically to the spiritual gifts. That's what it relates specifically to. So again, if you understand that context, Paul's going, Lord, do something about this. And he said, I have. I've given you the charismata. Look to the Holy Spirit. Look to the power, Christian, by which you've been born again. Look to the power, Christian, by which you've been given. You we're asking God for something that he's given you the power, the authority. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. Oh, God, just do something about it. Jesus doesn't love me. You have the Holy Spirit. We ask God to do stuff for us when he's already made provision for it. But we're lazy. You know what that requires? It requires you to actually change the way that you think. It requires you to pursue God in relationship in order to gain understanding. And that is exactly what he wants. He wants you to pursue him in love, in relationship, to gain understanding. Because it's not coming any other way. It's not. It's true. The knowledge is not coming but by revelation. And revelation is only coming through intimacy. It's only coming that way. We will just, will just tell me. Just tell me. It doesn't work like that. You have, to, you have to come to him. You have to relate to him. You have to struggle with him. You have to, first of all, let him love you. Because there again is charismata. You want revelation? Revelation comes when you let Jesus love you. God, for the, the first part of this equation is not just loving God. We love because he first loved us. You can't love him unless you get his love first. The first part of the equation is letting the Lord love you. And as he loves you, God's not, he's not, he's not, he's like, he's not worried about the answer. He has the answer. He's not worried about the solution. He's like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I have never seen this one before. Wow. Get the angels together. We need to plan. <laughs> Your problem doesn't freak him out. He's not freaked out. He's not. He wants relationship. The problem's there. Kevin, we got the problem, dude. The solution's there. Yeah, I got a word. Do I have a solution? Yeah, I got a solution. But all of this is to drive you to me. All of this is to be used to drive you to me because what I want is intimacy. Into me you see, and into you I see that you and I would be one, and that from that oneness, your relationship with me would go to another level. You would be transformed, and you would become someone that you would never become without the relationship. It's not robotic action. It's not religious rule keeping. It's not about that. Some of you, the answer is waiting for you, but it comes through intimacy, waiting for you. He's not freaked out. 
Oh, God, do something about the situation. Get in the spirit, Christian. Go to the charismata. Get the mind of the Lord. God, just do something about this. Oh, do something about it. My charismata is sufficient for you. It's on. After you got after Jesus, so Paul comes to Jesus. Here we go. What happens to him? Happy day, right? Happy day. He comes to Jesus. It's all my little pony and rainbows from here on out, isn't it? He loses his job, huh? He's everywhere he goes, he has spiritual opposition. He's thrown in prison several times, and these aren't American prisons, these are holes in the ground. You were, they'd throw you in prison and they'd forget about you. They weren't record keeping back then. They're like, oh, who's this guy? I don't know, who, who are you? Why are you here, you been here what, how long? Okay, well man, we gotta figure this out. That's how it was. You, you were in prison until they figured out who you, we, they, they, all of a sudden they realized, oh, wow, we've had this guy. We were only supposed to have him for like four days. Well, we had you. We had you for four years? Oh, my gosh. That's how it was. You'd be thrown in prison and you'd be forgotten. They didn't, they, that was how, and you weren't thrown in like a cell and they weren't giving you three hots and a cot. They were giving you, you were in a hole in the ground. And they did this to him several times. Thrown out of town. Literally, beaten, literally, followed by trolls. You think Instagram's bad or Facebook's bad. <laughs> These guys followed it in groups. Wherever Paul went, they followed behind him. And they would, as soon as he would leave, they would come in and teach something else. And they would say, well, Paul's wrong on that. Let's, let me explain this to you. And that's where we actually get the epistles written because of that. Paul's writing back to the church to say, that's not correct that's not correct. He's, he's correcting the church because there were false teachers that came in after he left because he was going from town to town. He was lost at sea. He was shipwrecked three times. What was, his, what was his response? I don't think I'd respond this way. I'd be like, Lord, I want another deal. Okay? This, this, is, this is a raw deal. He said, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. He considered it all but a light affliction for a moment, is working exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. In other words, what is happening to me is nothing compared to what is going on in me. What is being done to me is nothing compared to what the Lord is using it for. We do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen, for the things that, are we, that we see are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We as Christians, we're not to live by the externals. We're to live by his world. There again, the charismata. All of Paul's setbacks and everything that happened to Paul, he was trying to do the right thing. Anybody ever have a setback or have, some, have the sky fall down on you and all you were trying to do was the right thing? You weren't trying to harm anybody. Nothing happened. And you just get broadsided and everything falls apart. I'm going to share this one story with you. Acts 27, you can read it later. What's happening here in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 27 Paul was arrested, charged, and convicted. So he's arrested, he's charged, he's convicted. His crime, sedition, which means division against the Roman government, trying to overthrow the Roman government. The sentence for that was death. Well, how was he trying to overthrow the Roman government? Because he was bringing a kingdom from another world. That was what he was doing. And they were an oppressive government, and they were a government where you follow the rules or you died. Pretty much that was the case. And Paul was bringing people to Christ, and he was teaching slaves that you can be free, and all of this stuff. He's doing all this, and they looked at him as seditious. They looked at him as a threat to the status quo. So they eventually arrest him, try him, convict him. He's sentenced to death. He appeals to Caesar. He says, I want to go to Caesar. And they said, well, then, because it was a capital crime. He was a Roman citizen. He had the right to appeal to Caesar. And so they put him on a ship bound for Rome. Roll the next slide. Problem is, is that they're sailing late. Anybody who's, you know, most mariners, they understand the weather. There are certain times when you can travel and there are certain times when you can't. Well, Paul understands that they shouldn't be sailing this late. It's not going to go good. He said, much time had been lost. And he said, and I fasted and I prayed. That's the first good thing he did. And he said, but, but it had become very dangerous to sail because of the fall weather. The season had changed and the environment was different, so they shouldn't sail. So Paul tells the sailors... Men, I perceive that this voyage is, not, is going to be disastrous. If we sail now, we're going to lose the cargo, the ship, and most likely our own lives too. But the Roman officer pretty much says, sit down and shut up, prisoner. You know, we don't need your counsel. We don't need your advice. Did we ask you? Okay, great. So shut up. 
And so instead, they follow the advice of the pilot and the owner. So here's one of the first things that setbacks come from, is getting advice, from getting ungodly counsel. How many setbacks have we had when people that were not counseling us in any way that was closely related to what the Lord would have us to do? Somebody just counsels you or gives you advice. It's not in the, not in the correct way. <laughs> Amen. Overruled by the experts. The experts overruled Paul. What happens a lot of times with human beings is we have a selfish will, and we use experts to reinforce our opinion. See it a lot. We go to the person who, we keep going to the person until we find the one or the two that will tell us what we want to hear. So we do. You have 10 people tell you no, you have one person tell you yes, and you said, see, see? <laughs> you ignore the experts when the expert's word contradicts Jesus' word. So if there's, a, if there's advice being given to you by experts, I don't care how smart they are, and it contradicts the word of the Lord, it contradicts the Holy Spirit to you and contradicts your own conscience, don't listen to them. The second thing that happens, so they, they get into this mess because of ungodly counsel. They get into this mess because they copy the crowd, right? But mom, everybody's doing it. Anybody ever had your mom tell you, well, if they all jumped off a bridge, would you do that too? If they all ran in and out into traffic, are you going to do that too? <laughs> they copied the crowd. It says, then the crew decided that they should go ahead and sail up the coast of Greece. Why? Because the majority wanted to. They did it because the majority said, this is what we're going to do. And they wanted to spend the winter in Phoenix because it had a nice harbor. What happens, and one of the things the Bible teaches us, the scriptures are pretty clear on this, is the, the majority is usually wrong. The Bible's very, like almost all of your Bible stories, God is not looking for a majority. He's looking for a minority who is willing and has a heart towards him. He doesn't need numbers. You see it with, with um, Gideon. He reduces it. He doesn't need a number. He's the 12 spies. We have 12 spies going into the land. Lord gives him a word and says, all that over there, I'm going to give you. I want you to go in there. I want you to check it out. I want you to get a report. And I want you to tell the people everything that I have for them over there. And 10 of them came back and go, we can't do it. It's too hard. We actually got to work. We actually got to risk. You mean we actually would have to work to inherit the promises of God? Yes. You mean we actually might have to risk to receive the promises of God? Yes. The provision of the promise is made, but you have to get it. You don't earn it. You contend for it. You go for it. You reach it. You meet the conditions that are attached to the promise, and then you receive the promise. That's how it works. The condition on the promise to the, 12, to the Israelites was go and take the land. Go up against these enemies. I'm going to give you victory, and when I give you victory, I'm going to give you everything that's there. And they didn't want to do it. The majority overruled. Joshua and Caleb said, we can do it. The other 10 said, no way, no way. You have the Pharisees, right? The religiously correct, large groups of them. None of them believed that Jesus was the Messiah. None of them. They all thought he had a demon. They all thought he was a false teacher. Were they right? Of course they were not right. They were wrong. The majority is usually wrong. They follow the circumstances. So they copy the crowd, you know, they, 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 and then they follow the circumstances. Watch this. I love this. When a gentle wind began to blow, oh, it must be time. It's so gentle outside. It must, this must be right. This must be right. <laughs> gentle wind began to blow from the south. The crew thought they had obtained what they wanted and their plan would work. How, why did they think their plan would work? Because of the circumstances. When we're led by the Spirit of God, we're led by the Lord, we're not to be, the, we're, there are three ways that God leads us. His Word, His Spirit, and circumstances. And circumstances are never to be our guiding point unless it's reinforced by something else. His Word or His Spirit. We're never to get rid of His Word or deny any counsel from His Spirit and simply go with circumstances. That is never what the Lord gives to us. We're to, get, we're to go by His Word, we're to go by his spirit, and then we're to follow the circumstances. And what the circumstances reveal to us is opportunity. They already had a word. They shouldn't sail. Where'd the word come from? Paul fasted, and he said, hey, guys, I don't know if it matters to you or not, but uh, here's how it's going to go. And they pulled up anchors close as possible to the shoreline, and they sailed for Crete. Next slide. When we, we're to live, so here's the deal. We're to lead lives live, driven by kingdom purposes. The Christian, we are, how we live our lives is not to be driven circumstantially. It's not even to be driven selfishly. We're to understand the purposes of God, and we're to live our lives by the purposes of God. And you say, well, what is that? That's a generic term. Yeah, it is. 
What does that mean? It means you need to get intimate and you need to, get, you need to begin to develop a relationship with the Lord and allow him to give you a vision for your life. Allow him to validate who you are, allow him to develop who you are in partnership with you, and then allow him to give you a vision and a purpose for your life. He has a purpose for you. You're created on purpose with a purpose, created for good works in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. Long before time ever began, God had established a destiny for you. Jeremiah 29, 11, if you need another verse. Seek the Lord for direction, establish a plan, and execute the plan. How does God speak to us? Through his word. How does, and what is his word? His word comes in three facets. It comes in logos, which is the written word. If you have a Bible or you have the Bible on your phone, that is the written word of God. That's the Greek word logos. It comes through revelation. So you read a verse and it's revealed to you, or God takes that word and speaks it directly to you. That's called rhema a revealed word, and then there's the word profe, which is prophetic word, or a declared word, or a revealed word through a prophetic declaration. And all of those are God's word to you. And we're to take that word, and we're to, we're to realize what the word of God is for us, and we're going to begin to seek God for a vision related to that word. And then when you have a vision related to that word, you're to develop a plan and execute a plan into the word that God has for you. Does that make sense to any of you? Yes. Anybody ever felt like they had a word from the Lord? Anybody ever felt like God has told, them, told you something not just specific, but it, like purposeful to your life? He's, he, what we, what our mistake a lot of times is we think he's going to do it for us. He's not going to do it for you. He's going to do it with you, but he's not going to do it for you. It requires partnership. And so you have to come into partnership with him and actually work this thing out. Uh, I was just sharing about a, I was talking to Matt over there at the board, and I was talking about a, uh, I, got, I, I gave a prophetic word to the crown prince of Madagascar. Did you know that? Yeah, I got his card. I said, why do you got his card? Well, my wallet fell apart, so I'm walking around with all my cards in my pocket, and I'm paying for the iTunes over there, and I saw the card, and I showed it to him. And um, I was at a conference, and he was there, and I felt like the Lord goes, go and prophesy to that guy. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm not going to give that guy a word. There's no way I'm going to give that guy a word. And then so the Lord's like, and I could feel the word. I knew I had it. And so I was like, all right. And I said, well, if he's by himself... I'll go prophesy to him, but I'm not going to like intrude or anything like that. And then it was the end of the, con- it was like lunch or something and everybody's gone and Sherry and I and a couple people were standing there and he's standing like literally like right there, just standing there, he got like a little robe thing on and the guy, his handler, you know, big handler guy standing next to him. He's just standing there like looking around the room and I'm like, okay. So I go over and I give him a word. He comes to me the next day at breakfast, sits down with me and he says, I just want to let you know I couldn't sleep last night over what you told me. And he said, I just, you know, and I, I gave him a really word. I told him, I said, this is what I feel like the Lord is saying to you. I said, I feel like, I said, are you going to rule? I said, I know your family's big. He goes, no, I'm in line to rule. I'm the crown prince. I was like, wow. And so I told him, I said, I feel like you're going to rule and that God's going to give you wisdom. And he's going to use you like he's used no one else before. See, I feel the glory on me. It's called a living word. So when the word is released, even when you go to speak of the word again, the word comes alive again because the word never dies. It's a living word. And so I gave him a word. I told him, this is what I feel like God is going to give you. He's going to show you wisdom. He's going to give you all these insights and these ideas, and he's going to use your country, and he's going to do these things for you. I said, there's also, I believe there's undiscovered natural resources on your island. And I said, I don't know what they are, but I said, I believe, you know, and I said, you should, do, you should consider doing geological expeditions and, you know, look into your country like probably none of your, he's like, wow. And he just, he just came to me, and he shared a whole bunch of stuff to me. And he told me, he said, that these are the things that I'm going to do. Then there was another guy that was there. He's a South African guy. And this guy, it seems to be the breakfast prophecy. So I'm sitting at the breakfast table. And this guy comes up and he's like, man, I want to talk to you, man. I don't even know who this dude is. I just saw him a couple of times. He goes, I've been chomping at the bit to talk to you, man. I'm like, all right. And then I'm sitting there talking to him. And I give him a word. And the guy jumps up from the table. It's crazy stuff. But one of the words that I gave him was, because he was an older guy, and I told him, I said, I feel like God is, God is giving you an opportunity, and he's providing an opportunity for you to leave where everybody expects you. The pressure is on you to do these things, but I said, I see that God's going to provide this for you. Shared a bunch of stuff with him, and I said to him, I really feel Poland for you. I said, I don't know if Poland means anything to you, and I told him, I said, I feel like there's, I see you in a room, and there's like all these really rough, minor-looking guys, like these really like kind of Eastern European guys, and I said, and you're ministering to them, and I see people coming to Christ. And then he begins to share a bunch of stuff related to how he's always, you know, to his own life. But then the next day he comes to me and he goes, I met a pastor from Poland at this conference. I'm going to Poland next year. It's like that. He didn't take the word and go, I got to go home and I've got to pray about this for six months. Oh, Lord, do you want me to go to Poland? Oh, do you want me to do that job, Lord? Do you want me to step into this? Do you want me to do that? We spent hours and days and months and years 
never activating the word of promise that God has spoken over your life. You're to take that word and to begin to partner with him and create an immediate plan of execution. And the plan of execution is not going to be perfect. It's going to change. God gives you a vision. The Bible says the vision speaks. The vision doesn't speak until you move. He gives you a vision. He'll show you the future. You're going to be a powerful businessman. Oh, that's great. And then you continue to go over here. God says, I want you to start this entrepreneurial business. I want you to do these specific things. And you just have a general idea. And then you leave it alone and you go, well, I'm waiting for more details. Clue phone. More details aren't coming. You're going to get a direction. And only when you move in the direction will the vision begin to speak back to you. And as you move into the vision, the the vision will begin to talk to you. And now your course will start to change. And now the developmental process will start to change. But until you move, the vision doesn't speak. Very important to know that. Some of you got prophetic word. You've heard the Lord say certain things to you. It's not happening by itself. You have to move into it. You have to ask God, give me a step, and he's going to show you one. You may not like it. <laughs> I have a plan. God, I feel like the Lord's told me, do this for the next two years. I ask the Lord. I ask the Lord stuff all the time. And I don't like what he's told me to do. I don't like it. It's not, it's not as we would say, it's not sexy. You know? It's not thrilling. You know, we all want the clouds, woo, soaring through the clouds. Sometimes God goes, work the dirt, work the soil. I want you to do that, and in two years, you come talk to me, but I want you to do these specific things for the next 24 months. That's what he told me to do, and I don't like it, but I'm doing it, and I'm disciplining myself, and I'm trying to execute, and here I am, what, 60 days in, because I believe God for a vision, so I'm 60 days in, my wife goes, you know, God tells you something, and you're 60 days in, and you're already crying about it. I go, I know, because I don't like it. I don't like it. He never told you you needed to like it. This is important. When God tells you something, he's not taking a vote. Does this make you feel good? Is this comfortable for you? I mean, does this give you the warm fuzzies? Can, can, you know, do you need a cup of cocoa? He just tells you to do it. He expects obedience. That's what he expects. And obedience requires a sacrifice. And obedience is when you don't want to. He tells you something, and you don't want to do it, but you do it anyway, that's obedience. If he tells you something, and you do it, that's called agreement. Two, entirely different. Oh, yes. Right in line. Oh, yeah, that word was completely harmonizing. And I, you know, you're not, in agree, you're not in obedience. I'm just being obedient. No, you're in agreement. Obedience is when he tells you something that's completely contradictory to what you want, or what you think. Then you're in obedience. If the anointing isn't on it, it doesn't matter how gentle the breeze is. Grace is in the eyes of the Lord, people. If you want to know grace, again, charis, power, the power of the Spirit, the power of God is where God is looking. You want the power of God? Look where he's looking. Well, how do I know that? Ask him. Lord, what are you saying? What are you doing? Lord, when you look over me, what do you see? What is your grace towards me? I see a daughter. Wow. Well, tell me more. No, I'm just going to leave you with daughter. I want you to meditate on daughter. I want you to meditate on that, and I want you to begin to develop yourself into that word. When you begin to develop yourself into that word, and I can see that you're developing yourself into that word and you're living towards that, I'm going to give you another instruction. You want want him to speak over you? I'll give you a word right now. You want the grace of the Lord over you? How does the Lord see you? Sons and daughters. If you're in Christ, you're sons and daughters. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, why why don't you go and figure that out first? What does it mean to be a son of your father? What does that mean? What, what, does, what, does that, what are the implications for you? What are the implications in relationship? What do those implications mean for your life? Why don't you start patterning that out? Oh, I don't feel like that, Kevin. No, no I, don't, you know, I don't feel like that. Well, you're never going anywhere, people. You're not. I've been around the gospel for a long time. I've heard every song, dance, dog and pony show. There's nothing new under the sun. And I have heard and watched and listened to everybody boast about their prophetic word for years. And 10 years back, didn't you say that 10 years ago? Nothing's happened. Well, I'm just waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord. Could it be he's waiting on you? Could it be? We never develop ourselves beyond the starting point. And generation after generation after generation of believer dies in the wilderness without ever inheriting the promises, without ever stepping into the vision that God has for them. You need a purpose in your heart that you're not going to be that person because you will be if you don't. You will be. The kingdom of God's going to keep moving. Doesn't mean you're not loved. Doesn't mean you're not saved. Doesn't mean you're not going to heaven. You're going to go to heaven, and then you're going to lament all of the things that you could have done on this earth. You're going to lament, wow, you had that vision for me? Yeah. 
Well, why didn't you give it to me? Because you couldn't get past son and daughter. I couldn't teach you one plus one equals two, so how in the world am I going to teach you calculus, Kevin? Learn remedial math. Learn your primary colors, and I'll teach you to paint portraits. Are you here? It's true. This is, this is the call on the church. Jesus isn't interested in playing patty cake. He, you know, and that's what we do. We play patty cake. Oh, patty cake, patty cake. The majority of the American church is in patty cake mode. Christian sugar spice. Woo! I just had a woman tell me, oh, she used to come here. She goes to this other church. You know, she's just like... But whenever I need a prophetic word, Pastor, I come here. I'm like, oh, thank you so much. I don't feel used by that at all. But yeah, thank you. You got a prophetic word for me? Yeah, commit! <laughs> Another guy comes in and out. Woo! Same thing. Likes to go. Likes the legalism. Likes this. Doesn't like this. Doesn't like spirit. Doesn't like power. Doesn't like change. But he says to me, when I need a touch of God, Kevin, I come here. I'm like, do you realize what you do? You don't want to say that to me. If you do, just hold the chair because I'm going to say something back. <laughs> I said, do you realize what you just said? You come here for a touch of God, which means to me that every other church you go to, you don't have a touch from God. Do you even realize what just came out of your mouth? Foolishness. Patty cake Christianity that feeds our comfort. Jesus isn't interested in feeding your comfort. He wants to shake you up. He wants to develop you. He wants giant killers. He wants cultural transforming people. Pinwheels. Woo! Wow, the light show was so amazing this morning. Did you see the pastor's hair? I know. He has got the coolest hair ever. I don't know where he buys his clothes. I'm going to have to ask him that. Smoke machine? Yeah, I know. So cool. Had to put that on Instagram. That was amazing. Modern American Christianity, powerless, 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 powerless. Oh, we've got relationships and we've got love and we've got our own little, you know, our own little thing, but we're narcissistic. We create narcissistic Christians, not kingdom focused Christians, and there's no power. And you know what happens? We're the salt of the earth and the salt loses its savor. And you know what happens when the salt loses its favor? Something happens to the culture. The culture begins to slide. Why? Because when the church loses its savor, when the church has its savor, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to every people. When the, when the church fails to be the city on a hill and the church fails to be the salt of the earth, the culture rots. The culture rots. And the church just sits there and tiddly winks and twiddles their thumbs. And we become carnal. And our teaching becomes carnal. And our teaching becomes self-focused. It's not self-focused, it's Jesus-focused. And it's beyond Jesus-focused because it's not Jesus in power to your personal life. It's Jesus empowering your life towards the kingdom. That's a big difference. It's not Jesus empowering you for your own selfish existence. It's Jesus empowering you so that you can go about your Father's business and bring on earth as it is in the heaven. And what does that mean? That's the challenge, isn't it? That's the challenge. God gives generic questions. You ever wonder? Jesus does this. He goes, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part of me. You have to do that. And, you know, and all the disciples are just like, yep, drink of his flesh and drink of his blood. Yep. Great. Peter, if you see, Jesus says those types of things several times. And Peter goes, what does this mean? You have to be, so if you understand something, the way the Lord speaks, he speaks in generics. Do you know Why? Because he wants you to pursue him with questions. And if you don't pursue him with questions, he's not answering it. He's not answering it. Well, Jesus said, I'm a daughter. Yep. Have you pursued him with questions? Jesus said, I'm a son. Yep. Have you pursued him with questions? Nope. Well, it's never going to open up to you. Jesus said, I'm going to write books. Great. Have you pursued him with questions? Have you pursued him with understanding? Nope. Then it's never going to open up to you. He, he says, you're called unto the kingdom. What does that mean? Start asking questions. Start asking questions. Start relating to the Holy Spirit. This is how this stuff works, man. <laughs> he loves you. Come on. Oh, I knew my watch was lying to me. Okay, so the storm blows them out to sea. They begin to drift. 
okay? So the, the storm comes, going to go real fast. Storm comes, knocks them out to sea. They're in the middle of nowhere. That's what a storm does to you. You're on track. You're going towards the thing. This is what's going to happen. Storm comes, whack, and you're in the middle of nowhere. How in the world did I get in this place? I was just going up the coast. I was just taking a little ride, going down this way. Boom, all this stuff happens, and now I'm in the middle of nowhere. They began to become, because of the pressure, they began to be driven by pressure. They began to be driven by fear and not purpose. They tied ropes around the boat to try to hold it together. In the midst of their purpose, they were just trying to hold it together. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes. And if you're young in the room and you don't know what I'm talking about, life will teach you what I'm talking about. You can try to hold it together. I just got to hold it together. Human effort is going to do it. They had to discard some things, so they start throwing stuff overboard. So what happens in the storm is they have to, get, you have to start lightening the load. They had to make changes. They had to make changes. You have to make changes in yourself and to that which is around you. Next slide. So they start to drift. Then they begin to despair. Here's what happens. Some of you can completely identify with this. It went on for 14 days and nights. The storm battered the ship, and they lost all hope. They lost all hope. Days become weeks. Weeks become months. Months become years. Years become decades, and it doesn't change. What is the inevitability? You lose hope. Isn't that not true? Some of you have had pressure on your life for a very long time, very long time, and your hope is gone. Your hope is gone. It's, it's part of the problem. So what happens when we start drifting and we're in despair? What do we do? What is God's answer to this? Number one is his presence. That's the first thing. The presence of God is number one. So true. You have to get into his presence. The Bible says in the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. There's counsel and mercy forevermore. We come to the presence of God. I'm not just talking about I'm standing in a room. I'm talking about getting into his spirit, allowing yourself to come into the encounter with his spirit and let his spirit move in you. You come into his presence. Finally, Paul got the crew together and says, men of God, if you'd listen to me, I hate to tell you I told you so, but I told you so. You would have avoided this injury and loss if you would just listen to my counsel, the counsel of the Spirit. But take courage. None of you will lose your lives even though the ship is going to go down. For last night, I got a word from God. The presence of God will bring you a word from the Lord. And the word from the Lord becomes your new purpose and becomes your new compass in the midst of your storm. Some of you, you're in the storm. You need to get into the presence of the Lord and you need to get a word from the Lord. And that word needs to become your compass, your compass and your direction. The word gives you a new purpose. So the angel said, don't be afraid. You will not, you will certainly gonna, you're, going to, you're going to Rome, Paul. You're going to stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has given you the safety of everyone who's sailing with you. Good news, guys. He's not just going to save me. He's going to save all y'all. <laughs> and he gives them a promise. So his presence gives a purpose, and the purpose attached to the purpose is a promise. Keep your courage, men, for I have faith that in God everything will turn out just as he spoke. And you know what? It will. What he spoke, God said, have I not said it? Will I not do it? Have I not purposed it in my heart? Will I not bring it to pass? That's the surety when God speaks. It's a surety. People get mad at me because I'm slow to make decisions sometimes. I don't make decisions unless I hear from the Lord. Unless it's either of obviously that God is telling me that. If he's not telling me that, I'm not deciding nothing. And I wasn't always this way. I learned the hard way. As will you. You think you know anything? What life's going to teach you is you know nothing. <laughs> You don't know a thing. And that's my problem. Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know anything. You're the only good idea I got, Jesus. So just tell me, and that's what I'm going to do. It's going to work out just like I said. And they got shipwrecked on an island. Next slide. Here's the deal. Jesus never saves, promises to save your boat, but he promises to save you. Some of you have put yourself in bad business decisions. He never promised to save that business, but he's going to save you. Some of you put yourself in bad relationship decisions and bad economics. You put yourself in horrible positions, and sometimes you were put in the position because of that of another. Marriages erode, not because you wanted it, but because of the choice of another. He never promised to save the marriage because he's obviously there's something else involved here, but he will save you. And do you know why he doesn't say, well, why doesn't God save all the other stuff? Because everything that you lose can be restored. His focus is not on all of this. His focus is on you. If he can bring you through, which he will, everything else can come back to you. He will restore you. Yeah. 
Say this with me. My heavenly father is in the restoration business. It's what he does. Come on. <laughs> he does it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's his specialty. God is in the restoration business. So, and it says, so, so then Paul says, eat something. He's like, look, it's going to work out. The word of the Lord is true. Strengthen yourself. Eat. Nourish yourself. Be strong because it's going to happen. Not a hair of your head is going to be lost. Strengthen yourselves. And so what happens is, is when you get the word from the Lord, you need to strengthen yourself. And then it says they got thankful. When God gives you a word in the midst of your storm, it doesn't mean the storm's going away, but it means God has just told me this is the way it's going to work out, or this is where I'm going, or this is what I'm supposed to do. You need to get happy. He gave you a word, okay? We have to learn to cherish the word of the Lord. Most people don't have the prophetic because they don't value the prophetic. God does not cast pearls before swine, ladies and gentlemen. He does not give riches and treasures to those who do not value it. The richness and the fullness of his gifts. Why most churches? Because they have no value for the prophetic. Therefore, they have none. They don't value the divine impartation. Therefore, they have none. They don't value divine healing. Therefore, they have none. Honor creates access. We have to honor his word and honor what he speaks to us and begin to execute and move into that and get encouraged and be thankful. Lord, I thank you that you never fail to speak to me. You always have a word. I thank you, Lord. It will come just as you say. And so what's it say? When daylight come. I got news for some of you. Daylight is coming. <laughs> the storm's been 14 days. The storm's been 14 weeks. The storm's been 14 years. Get into his presence. Get a purpose. Get a word. Get happy. And, day, and wait for daylight because daylight's coming. The officer ordered those who could swim. The rest of them, grab what you can and head for the shore. Daylight's going to come, which means what? The opportunity for you to make a comeback is going to come. God will not only bring you through the storm, he's going to give you an opportunity to come back from what you lost. 100%. Always. He will. Say, is that good? Yes, he is. Jump and swim in the direction he has shown you. When God says, now's the time, Kevin, jump. <laughs> Don't flip a coin, right? <laughs> People go, what's the will of the Lord? I always ask them. I go, you want the will of the Lord? Because you, you, want it, you want the will of the Lord so you can do it? Or do you want the will of the Lord so that you can decide whether or not you're going to do it? Most people want God to speak something to them so they can decide whether or not it's a good idea. <laughs> it's true. When God says jump, jump. And swim in the views, whatever you can. Grab a stick, grab a wood. This is my opportunity. The Lord said I was coming out of it. First uh, Corinthians 10, 13. This is my way of escape. I'm coming out. I don't know how to swim. Well, I'm going to grab a stick. I'm going to grab some wood, and I'm going to use that because that's how I'm going to do it. Move out of the situation and towards your comeback. God's going to give you that opportunity. Do you believe that? Yeah. Right. Is that it? That's it. That's more than enough. Yeah. All right, we're going to have a few. My, my watch, man, this makes me mad. I love watches, and when my watch doesn't work, it makes me mad. We'll have a few minutes for people for prayer, if you need prayer for anything. Um, but right now, I'm just going to bless you. Well, let me just do this. Oh, we have communion. Oh, we have communion. So we will not be praying this morning. We will be taking communion. <laughs> That's why I need people. I need good people around me. Here's what I want to say to you. If you don't know Jesus this morning, this is the symbolism that's been given to us, that Christ's body given for us and Christ's blood given to us. And if you've never received Jesus this morning, all you, when you can receive communion this morning, you say, I don't know if I'm saved, I don't know if I'm born again. You just go, Lord, this is your body that was given for me, I believe it, and I want, I want to receive you. This is your blood that was poured out for me, Lord, I believe you, and I want to receive you. It's a prayer of faith, and it's a prayer of connection. And we pray it as believers, and we commune with him in that, in, in that. But if you don't know Jesus this morning, you have that opportunity as well. And you can actually receive him this morning through the act of communion. So we're just going to bless the communion. And as Jody plays, if you would make your way up and around the outside and take the communion elements back to your seat with you, we will take them together. So let's just pray real quick. Father, we just thank you for this time. This is a sacred moment, Lord, as we remember everything you've done for us. Repositioning ourselves, Lord, and understanding who we are. Father, just bless this time, bless these communion elements as we honor you in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and make your way around and uh, bring it back to the seat with you. Oh, thank you.